I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to She Started It, the podcast that explores female entrepreneurship through the eyes of an inspiring guest every week. I'm your host, Angelica Malin, editor-in-chief of About Time magazine and founder of the She Starts It Live festivals. From fashion to fitness, law to entrepreneurship, this series of She Started It will explore what it takes to be a female trailblazer today. Get ready to be totally inspired. Today's podcast is brought to you in partnership with Tide. Tide is the business current account designed to support small business owners like you. With no daunting paperwork and no monthly fees, you could open an account in minutes. They couldn't make it simpler, trusted by over 100,000 businesses. Download the Tide app to get started today. Ellie Flynn is an investigative journalist and presenter who's made a number of documentaries for BBC Three. Ellie's debut documentary series, Ellie Undercover, saw her expose crimes and injustices against other people her age in the UK. In the first episode, Ellie looked at cases of rent for sex, where landlords offered free rooms in properties in exchange for sexual favours. The second episode, The Botox Bust, saw Ellie on the trail of medics who may be wrongly providing Botox. Ellie's most recent undercover documentary sees her investigate two multi-level marketing companies. Aside from her undercover series, Ellie's also made documentaries for BBC Three on Ireland's abortion referendum, the issue of so-called fake homelessness and child marriage in the USA. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Can you tell me in your own words about the work that you do? So I make documentaries, um, current affairs stuff, do a lot of undercover, um, predominantly for BBC Three. And I've covered all sorts of different topics, um, but generally seems to be things that target a young audience. So issues that really affect young people in the world today. A lot of the stuff I do is UK based um, and a lot of it is stuff that affects women in particular. Where did the desire come from to do this kind of work and to go into investigative journalism? So I, I studied journalism um, after I left uni for a year and originally I was looking at trying to do magazines and then sort of found more and more of an interest in investigative stuff. I just That was seemed to be what I kind of was always drawn towards. Um, so I sort of found this interest in investigative journalism, did a bit of freelance writing and then I actually worked at a newspaper for a little bit um, and would do more and more investigations here and there did a little bit of undercover and then fell into documentaries by chance really but um it feels like the best place to try and do these Mm. kind of investigations you get a lot more time you get a lot more room to really look into things what kind of skill set do you think you need to do investigations i think you have to be really inquisitive fundamentally um i think you have to just want answers to questions and think about how you're going to get them that that was the main that was the main reason I really wanted to get into journalism actually I was just really nosy as a kid and growing up and I always kind of I wanted to ask questions I always wanted to find out more about things and I couldn't just let things lie and I think that that transfers quite well into into journalism particularly investigative journalism the topics that you've covered in some of your documentaries have been really hard-hitting can you kind of talk to me about what that experience has been like and kind of how you deal with it on a personal level as well yeah it is um it is it is tough sometimes. I mean, you you 
I think specifically because you become so immersed in these worlds and you'll be looking at an issue uh, for, you know, however, however long it might be, a couple of months to six months. I think the longest investigation I've done has run over almost a year now. And it's it can be quite difficult to take yourself away from it, especially when you come back from filming and you've become so immersed in this issue and so immersed in people's lives and you're hearing these really, really tragic stories. Um, it's quite difficult sometimes to take a step back and mm-hmm. to sort of think about it as a job and you're there to report on something impartially. Um, it can be, you, you can end up getting a bit of an emotional connection to things and that's quite tough. Do you find it kind of takes you out of your own life in a way? I can kind of imagine going to like the pub with friends or something in the evening and you've been working on something really hard hitting and difficult during the day that I'm not sure my mind would be fully present. Yeah, it's weird. I definitely segregate my home life and my work life massively. So when I'm on a shoot, when I'm working on a documentary, if I'm away, I won't really think about my home life at all. And then I come home and I, and I am quite good at separating work from that. But I have noticed I'm just so intense at parties now because everyone's like, oh, what are you up to? And I'm like, oh, well, I've been doing this undercover investigation and then I'm covering this story. And it's all really heavy topics and people are interested. So they ask more. And I'm like, I've been standing in the corner talking about the most intense subjects for the past 45 <laughs> minutes. Like, honestly, stop inviting me. Do you ever feel like just making up a totally fake job? Like, I'm, just, yeah. <laughs> I'm a lifeguard. Yeah, a lifeguard. I work in a zoo, <laughs> something like that. What for you have been the hardest ones that you've done? Um, oh, that's a tough question. I think the one that I'm working on at the moment, um, um, it's due to come out. Actually, I'm not sure. It might have already come out by the time that this goes out. But my most recent one for BBC Three is about sexual assault in police custody in the US. And that's been, I've been working on it over the course of a year. And we've, you know, it's been really difficult uh, finding people obviously getting people to open up about something that's so so horrific mm. um and then also it's just been it's just been a really tough it's really been a really tough one because it's such a emotive subject it's really difficult to get people to open up about it and mm. obviously you have to be so sensitive when you're speaking to people about what they've been through and then just in terms of the issue itself um more and more people are saying that police officers are sexually assaulting people in America but there's no place that you can go to there's no place with figures or statistics and all of the police forces in America are so segregated there's no no one on like a government level or a federal level that's collating this evidence so just in terms of actually looking into the issue and finding out how much is this happening how bad is this issue has taken a year and was really, really difficult in itself. Mm. Um, so it's just a tough investigation. And I suppose no one really trains you in that sensitivity and trying to get the best out of people and make them feel safe and open up to you. That's There's no training you can really do for that. No, there's not. It's, it is just something that you learn on the ground. And it's something that I'm still learning. Um, I feel like I've learned so much over the past, it's been about a year and a half now since I've started working in documentaries. And I've seen how much I've grown in that time and I've seen how much my interview style has changed and developed. And it is, you know, you you do make mistakes and sometimes you feel like you've said the wrong thing and you'll come back and sometimes I'll finish a shoot and I'll say, oh God, I can't believe I didn't ask that or I didn't deal with this in that way. And I think it's quite easy to be quite hard on yourself. But Mm. like you say, it it isn't something you can really train yourself to do. So. What are some of the challenges of like the nature of your job? So obviously it's freelance, um, you're kind of having to be self-employed, you're having to come up with the ideas. I guess there are some barriers with that as well. Yeah, um, it's. I think being freelance is just difficult for anyone sometimes. Um, and I, 
my personality as well I almost think I quite need structure and I quite like having structure so it's been quite difficult for me to to balance how I can manage my time and how to sort of make it work as a freelancer so that's been a whole learning curve in itself and other challenges I think everyone thinks that I think everyone expects things to move a lot quicker than it does. TV takes ages. It takes ages from the point of having an idea, pitching an idea, to then starting production and finishing production. Mm. And it's good in a way because it means you have loads of time to think about this story and this issue. But it also can be quite frustrating at times. And particularly, I'm quite impulsive. I'm quite a fast-paced person. Mm. So there's definitely times when I'm thinking, I wish this would move a little bit quicker. Um, But I don't think it's always for the best and presumably there's quite a lot of stuff that just falls by the wayside that just doesn't really ever even get to production. Oh yeah, absolutely. There's loads of things. And you know, I'll, I'll work on a pitch document of like, this is amazing. This is going to be the best documentary ever. It's going to turn into a six-part series. And then you sort of speak to uh, you speak to an exec or you speak to a commissioner and you realise that actually you haven't really thought about this angle and that's why it's not going to get commissioned or someone else is already making a similar documentary um so i think it, you, you have to get used to mm. getting knocked back quite a lot because because it's kind of more likely that it's not going to get commissioned than it is so oh, yeah. you're having to be like yeah quite kind of self-confident and brazen but knowing it might not work yeah. out yeah and it's definitely not like a personal thing i think it's just sometimes there's similar ideas sometimes they can't really see how it's going to work sometimes it's just not the right story for right now mm. what advice would you give people wanting to do what you've done so going down kind of documentaries media investigative journalism any advice for kind of young women thinking about doing that so i think the main advice that i always give is the best way to get into it is to have a story so i think you can you, it's all well and good saying oh i'd like to present documentaries or i'd like to get into this but if you can think about an area or a subject and you can go out and you can get yourself some access and you can say I think this is a really amazing story and I've worked on getting this access to these contributors and then you take that to a production company then you're already a few steps ahead of people who Mm. are just sort of thinking about getting into the area Um, and I think I mean that's how I ended up falling into it I had a story that um, I'd written about for Vice and this production company got in contact with me and asked if I wanted to be a contributor on a documentary and I was like no thank you I don't want to be on TV and then a year later they came back and were like oh we don't have to talk about your experience but would you be interested in reporting on other people's experiences what subject matter was that one so it was about catfishing Mm -hmm. um a very long story short when I was about 14 15 these fake profiles were started of me and all my friends and there was about 80 of them and they went on for about 10 years um it was absolutely mad people would actually recognize us in public we were in Malia and these guys came up to us and they were like oh I know who you like hey Ali how you doing sort of thought wow, they'd been speaking to so me for scary. a year yeah it was mad um so this, this company got in contact and asked if I f- fancied being in a documentary and um we had lots of meetings over over the course of a year and I ended up meeting the BBC and that actually never got commissioned but in the meantime I'd built up relationships mm. and I'd met the commissioner and I'd done a bit of undercover work and so they the BBC and this production company were like, oh, well, what about a, an undercover series idea? And then we pitched Rent for Sex and uh, the Botox Bust and a few others, and they were the two that got commissioned. Amazing. So, yeah, so I suppose it's having the idea and then it's networking, going out and meeting people. Yeah, exactly. And I think putting yourself out there, um, you know, you ha- if you can... And also, once you've once you've had the opportunity to meet people and once you have those connections, then follow up. I'm constantly chasing people up, sending emails asking to go meet for a coffee again because I just think that mm. you know no one owes you a job 
uh, you've got a you've got a graft of it. It's that freelance hustle, isn't it? It is such hustle. <laughs> what do you think about like? I feel like people are often saying like, if you want to be a presenter or you want to be on the front of documentaries or TV, you need to go off and do your own YouTube channel and you need to create your own content. What do you think about that? I don't think you have to do that. I mean, I'd never never been in front of a camera before this documentary got commissioned. Um, I think I did one sort of five minute video of me on my laptop talking about. I think I must have been talking about the catfish story and then I suddenly was on TV and I remember thinking like this guy is mad why is he why is he so sure that I can do this job I have no idea mm. if I'm going to be any good um and yeah I don't so I don't think that that's the only way to do it but I think that it's really hard people always ask me that like you know how do you get into it and I just for me it was a lot of being in the right place at the right time mm. and then working hard so I don't think there is one set answer I think just if you've if you've got an idea and you think you can make it into something, there's no harm doing a YouTube channel. There's no ta- there's no harm trying to get other presenting jobs or other things that get you in front of a camera, mm. um, just for experience, I suppose, more than anything. But yeah, I don't think it's a necessity. Are you uh, are you no longer camera shy now? No, I'm st- I still hate having my photo taken so much. Do you? Yeah, I really do. And whenever we're on a shoot and we have to try and get some press shots, I'm always. Oh. Like, really grumpy about it for a while so I'm just like I never look good I don't know what face to pull I look really awkward um but I think that's I'm getting I'm getting better yeah. and um I, yeah I'm, I'm much more used to having a camera filming me now than I was I think when when I first ever did it I was because I had no experience and, I, and no one had told me how to do it I was really trying to be a presenter so I was speaking in this like, sort of unnatural way and being quite I remember the first interview I did I think was terrible because I just didn't know how to do it and mm. I was I'd been sent a script and I was really trying to remember the questions and it was really stiff and then the director I was working with who's a really good friend of mine now she I remember her saying to me you know you just have to forget about what you think a presenter is forget about how you think you need to ask these questions just be yourself mm do an interview like you were doing it over the phone or face-to-face without a camera here and speak to me like like I'm your mate. And I think that's definitely helped me to become more natural and more yeah. confident. Well, when you look at the kind of big like documentary makers, people like Louis Theroux, when you watch them, there's not so much of a real presenting style. It's just kind of him and he's just talking. And I think that's what makes people relaxed yeah. and gives you like the best possible content out of it. Yeah, exactly. I think it's, yeah. I just I was so nervous. I just didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> I was like, I got it was like imposter syndrome to the max. I was like, I can't believe that I'm here. Well, it sounds like you had good people around you, which makes a big difference. Yeah, definitely. With um with the Ellie Undercover series and with Rent for Sex, can you tell me a little bit about like the experience of making that documentary and kind of what impact it had on you as well? Yeah. Um. So that was that was really intense. And I so all the documentaries that I make, I work as either a researcher or an, now I'm an assistant producer on all of them. And I've always said I want to be a big part of the production team. I don't want to just sort of come in and present it. If I was going to go into TV, I really wanted to actually get to grips with the journalism as well. Um, so I worked on those. It was must have been about six months, I think, in total, working on the two programmes, Rent for Sex and The Botox Bast. And... It was really, really intense, especially because I had all these burner phones and I was looking after them. So in the middle of the night, my phone would be going off and it'd Mm. be sort of a landlord who was texting me that I'd contacted earlier in the day. And it's really hard to switch off from and I couldn't really switch off from it because I was monitoring that at all times. But it does definitely take over your life. And I think 
at that point, especially because it's my first one, I wasn't really sure how to balance my home life and my work life, and it became quite all-consuming. Mm, I can imagine. I imagine it had quite a strong effect on your personal life as well. Yeah, but it was also really exciting, and I loved it. So I think that, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't have changed anything. What um, were some of the biggest kind of breakthroughs or discoveries you had in those two shows? Um, so Rent for Sex, I think, what was our biggest breakthrough on that? I think, to be honest, it was it was the scale of it. So we knew that it was happening quite a lot and, we, and we'd done all of our research in order to warrant an undercover investigation. And then one of the things that we needed in order to go and see one of these landlords and film with them undercover, we needed evidence that they'd already had someone to stay in the past. And when when that was put as a sort of uh, threshold that we had to meet, I remember thinking this might be quite difficult. I wonder how many of them are actually just chancing it and mm. how many have done this before. And the sheer numbers of people who had actively had people to stay before was really shocking and I think that's when I really realized mm. how big of an issue this was it was really like a story here yeah exactly um and with Botox it was so we'd been looking for that was actually commissioned first we'd been working on that one for ages and we knew that there were these remote prescribers who were illegally prescribing Botox to beauticians across the country and we really struggled to find find any names and we knew there was someone and we felt like we were so close to it through this investigation but we just couldn't get that breakthrough in terms of finding a name and then right towards the end of our investigation we finally got this doctor's name um and we were trying to set up an interview with him we're trying to find some kind of environment where i could naturally meet him and and mm, just find like it. his local starbucks yeah well yeah it was more it was more like see if he had a doctor's surgery or see if he had a website where he said you know i can be a prescriber and, and there was nothing and then eventually we were going to send him a letter saying, OK, well, these we know these are the allegations we have against him anyway. So we were going to send him a letter mm. and say, what do you have to say about this? I was about to send this letter and we had to find his address to send it. And while I was looking for the address, I realised that his house was on Airbnb. And oh. so I just went over to my exec and I was like, I could just stay there <laughs> and start talking about Botox. And he sort of looked at me and was like, this is an absolutely mad idea. And then we ran it all past the the lawyers and and we were like yeah okay well maybe we should just we should just book in and then you can have that face-to-face meeting and then that ended up being the biggest breakthrough of the investigation because he explained how much he was doing how he was doing it and it just took the investigation to the next this was all undercover yeah you must have i mean how did you feel yeah i think i think i was scared then were you nervous i was nervous i think it was it was more because this was everything had been hinging on this this interview. We'd really, really been working so hard to try and get here, and I just remember sort of walking to his house. And there's one bit in the film where I'm chatting to Chloe, my director, who was also there with me, and I sound almost hysterical. I'm like, he might not even be in. This could be a complete waste of time. And my voice is really high pitched throughout the whole thing because I think I was just so nervous about getting found out or doing something wrong. Um, so yeah, that was definitely one of the most nerve wracking shoots. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then... 
Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Today's podcast is brought to you in partnership with Tide, the UK's fastest growing business current account provider. Feel confident in your first steps as a founder with smart financial tools and 24-7 in-app support. With easy invoicing and accounting integrations, Tide is an alternative to traditional banks for small businesses like yours. Spend less time on admin and more time on growing your business. Tide are also committed to helping women in business and are offering our listeners £50 when you open a Tide account and deposit £50. Just visit www.tide.co forward slash she started it to get started. If you're feeling inspired by this week's episode and are thinking of starting your own business, why not come along to the next She Started It Live in London? Taking place on the 13th and 14th of March 2020 at Crypt on the Green in Farringdon, this two-day flagship festival will give you all the advice and inspiration you need to supercharge your career with over 75 incredible speakers. Book on Eventbrite now by searching for She Started It Live and use the code SHESTARTEDIT10 for 10% off. Do you ever worry about your own kind of personal security with doing work like this? Um, definitely not as much as my mum does. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> I feel like my mum would be like, no, absolutely yeah. not. <laughs> Every time I'm like, mum, I'm doing another undercover, she's like, oh, yeah. can't you just do something else? No, I don't think so. I think the most I've ever felt scared for my personal safety would probably be, probably have been the landlords with rent for sex. But I've... Ever, I think when you watch it, you think it's just me on my own going going off to meet people. Mm. But I've always got a team around me. Uh, you know, there'll be a producer very nearby who's listening in on the microphone or my director will be just outside. And there's always a contingency plan to get out. Mm. So I'd like to see a documentary of you making a documentary. <laughs> Behind the scenes. Behind the scenes, I would. I'll pitch it. <laughs> Thank you. I'd be fascinated, honestly, I would. And you also fronted a documentary about Ireland's abortion referendum. Um, can you describe that and also how you felt when there was the yes vote? What was what was really difficult about making that film was I really had to put myself in someone else's shoes. Going into that, I think growing up in the UK, um, having access to abortions if I ever needed it, I just, I've just never really considered a pro-life argument and I couldn't mm-hmm. really understand it. And because there was a vote and lots of people felt strongly on either side, I really had to go into that and try and understand a point of view that I'd never thought about before. So that was a real challenge for me and it was a sort of new step in, in making documentaries. And I think that was the biggest challenge that I faced. But also it was really good for me because I did actually think about other people's point of views. And I think I... I really learned how to go into something and not be quite as biased and not be quite as informed by my own opinion. Mm. Um, I definitely still was glad with the result at the end and it was a sort of amazing feeling. Did you feel kind of personally connected to that result because of the documentary? 
Yeah, but then weirdly, I felt really sad. I felt really sorry for Gavin, who mm. was this boy that we'd spent quite a lot of time interviewing. And you know, he was really sweet, and he really just, he just genuinely, genuinely believed in in a pro life argument, and it came from his own experience of his mum wanting to have an abortion and then not going through with it. And so for him, it was so connected with his own sense of self worth and his own sense of being deserving of a life and it's it's difficult to argue with that when someone's when someone has such a strong personal connect, connection to something and they really believe in an argument then it was it was sad to sit to see him on the day mm. yeah it must be very very conflicting i imagine yeah i suppose also you have access to another side of the coin that most people don't most people don't even really engage with that side of the argument and don't hear it so to go so deeply onto another side i can imagine that's quite conflicting as well yeah definitely i think it teaches you a lot just in general life I think there's such a people are so ready to just shut down anyone that disagrees with them or has a different opinion without actually listening and thinking about it and I think this job's taught me so much just to be a bit more open and Mm. trying to understand other people's point of views because I'm not right all the time Mm. and also other cultural references I think we we so often only kind of see things from our point of of what we grew up with and what we understand yeah exactly and opening ourselves up to more more understanding of other people's cultural references um you also did a documentary about Instagram and the dark side of social yeah multi-level marketing is that the one yeah yeah yeah. um fascinating my friend works for Arbonne yeah I know and whenever I go over there she's like oh I just got a white Mercedes and she's like tries to rope me in really? becoming an Arbonne salesperson. Everyone knows someone who's trying to rope them into them. Yeah, Everywhere. and I'm very honestly I'm very conflicted about it because she seems to make an awful lot of money. Yeah, and I can't really deny that. Like I've seen her weekly food shop. I've seen the white car. Living yeah, the dream. yeah. But what? she's worked seriously hard on it. So the only thing she's done, she's done it for five years. Like she's apparently one of the top people in the UK. But then I feel like everyone's one of the top people in the UK. I don't know. But um, I am conflicted about it, and I'm, yeah. I'm interested to hear what that was like. And yeah. do you think that you know this stuff is all having quite a negative impact on us? Yeah. So I that you know I felt so conflicted throughout the course of making that documentary because on one minute I would I'd be like, okay, no, this is really really wrong. It's really really exploitative. And then, you know, you'd see someone like that and I was like, oh, but maybe it's not so bad. And I, and I really, really wrestled with it for a long time. And the more we uncovered and the more that I spoke to people who'd really been impacted by these companies, the more I thought that there was, there's definitely something wrong here. Um, and the thing is, people, some people do make, some people do make a huge amount of money, but lots of people don't make anything at all and it's not even just not making money it's spending their own money that's the thing it's like investing to build the website and own your own business exactly it kind of annoys me like as someone who owns their own business and genuinely feels like an entrepreneur i think it does kind of annoy me the way it's banded around that they run their own business you're like it's not quite running your own business like you'd have to pay to run your own business so that from the off feels really dodgy to me yeah no exactly and and for me the key thing that i learned from that investigation was just there needs to be more transparency these it's so so elusive the compensation plans are so confusing I feel like it is very misleading the compensation plans are misleading it's made to sound like it's very easy and you're constantly fed this message that if you just work hard enough if you really push yourself you can do it you can have the white Mercedes you can have all the money you can get to the top of your game but the fact is not everyone can not everyone's good at sales not everyone knows enough people not everyone lives in an area where lots of people want to buy their makeup products and that's just facts mm. and that's what's misleading you're told you can do it when 
the reality is you might not be able to not everyone can i think it also can i imagine put a huge amount of pressure on your personal relationships because oh, we're like if i can imagine if i'm going for dinner with my best friend and i'm like oh would you like to try a new lipstick i imagine that is really strange yeah. and i don't know quite quite jarring definitely a lot of people said that they're personal relationships were so negatively impacted by working for one of these companies because everyone's a target mm. you've constantly got to recruit and and if you're not making any money you know that the way that you can actually make a success of this is to recruit a team so it's if you want to make a success you have to go out you have to try and recruit your mom your friends the person in the shop that you just saw mm. and that it's really difficult and i think as well you're expected to spend so much time on it and it's all on your phone so it's very Antisocial, and it can have a huge impact on your personal relationships with your family your husband what, what do you think will happen to this industry do you think there is going to be more transparency i hope so i really hope so at the moment it seems to exist in this gray area really it's a, it's a bit of a loophole where we try to speak to all these different regulatory bodies to say you know do you have anything to say what can people do and they didn't really know because there weren't any real set laws on it there's laws on pyramid selling but this isn't quite pyramid selling yeah, multi-level isn't yeah it? people there's some people who argue that it is pyramid selling but it doesn't fit that area in the law it exists in this sort of gray area in the law where it's not pyramid selling but there definitely is some elements of exploitation and targeting vulnerable people but there's not really any laws to protect people from it so i hope that that maybe the government will step in and try and enforce some laws where the companies have to be more transparent and have to really warn people about the likelihood of success before they sign up. Mm. But mm. whether that will happen, I'm not sure. Do you worry that social media as a whole has made young people a lot more vulnerable? Yeah, I think that social media is making young people much more vulnerable. I think that the scam is evolving in a way where there's more and more p things that are targeting young people on social media and whether that's financial whether that's sort of a romance scam there's all these different ways that people can get caught out and i think that a lot of that is happening in on social media and that's really dangerous yeah and if you just look at the detox stuff it's like all these products that still you're being billed as like this is going to make you lose x amount of weight yeah and they're really unhealthy and it's yeah. quite scary and I, I, it's amazing that it's still so unregulated so unregulated it's really hard to tell as well what's legit and what's not i mean i am the world's biggest consumer honestly i'm instagram's dream i see one influencer <laughs> with a teeth whitening thing and i'm like oh maybe i should get that um but i have to really do my research and think like hey right is this actually any good is it gonna do what it says and mm. most of the time once you've done a bit of research into it it's not mm. it's also terrifying you know all the studies that have shown that, that young people are getting into debt so much younger because of things yeah. like instagram because it's the ease with which you can just swipe up and buy um that like yeah that that, that speed is terrifying yeah that's something that's an area that i'm that i'm really interested in actually because it just feels like money's because you don't have cash anymore money's not quite money it's mm. all just sort of something that you do over paypal or you send it over your phone you can do it on instagram and it's so easy now you can just sort of tap your thumbprint on mm. and then you spent money and more and more people are getting into debt and i think that with buy now pay later things mm. as well it's just quite it's hard crazy to like with with the klarna stuff yeah. you can literally go on to top shop it'll be like an item that's like 15 quid and you can do it in installments which yeah. is so mad like it's not even high ticket items literally everything everything you can klarna which is it's yeah it's scary because it makes you think you can basically buy anything and you think oh well, i'll just pay like three quid a month and then i would have paid off that backpack and it's just not a good mentality to get into with money no exactly it's, it's i think it's really dangerous um and i think that 
the issue is there's lots of these big companies and lots of people that are profiting out of that but at what expense i think that more and more people are struggling financially and are getting themselves into debt mm. there's also a flip side of it i think where people also see other people's work lives on social media and think that they don't work like the whole time but make loads of money like the multi-level marketing yeah. thing or being an influencer um or being freelance i think it's all quite glossy on yeah. social so there's this like weird dichotomy where we don't where we want to spend loads of money but we also don't really want to work that hard anymore yeah. either and i'm not really sure where we're at with any of that it's so true i don't i think the nine to five has been really demonized now people don't want to put that like you know those de- those hours in yeah they want to make money quite quickly yeah and it's weird because it's i feel like there is this growing sense that having a nine to five is bad in some way so having a nine-to-five is a good thing to do you know great if you want to start your own business if you want to be freelance I'm glad that it's not the only way that we think of work now but also I don't think we should demonize it Mm. you know some people I think for mental health like a lot of people wouldn't be good at freelance like it's really stressful there's loads of stuff that no one really tells you about like how you sort out your own pension like you don't get holiday leave like taxes like literally taxes all of it and it's really stressful and it's also quite unstable at times and you it's hard to financially plan and that doesn't suit everyone and doesn't suit everyone's mental health so yeah I agree I think we have really glamorized the freelance life and I'm here to tell you that it's really not that glamorous like very (laughs) unglamorous when you were like at the end of the tax year with like two massive boxes of receipts and you're like what is my life how do I do this I I just send them all to my accountant with a little post-it note being like sorry (laughs) please help (laughs) yeah I haven't itemized them yeah I'd also say I think like what freaks me out sometimes is like the connectedness of it all so you like go and watch Love Island you see them wearing outfits then you like go on your phone and the same outfits are advertised and I, I get kind of freaked out by the nature of all like we all know that our phones are listening to our conversations and doing that for targeting ads but it's, it's so kind scary. of freaky isn't it yeah it is you know we you'll talk about a pair of shoes and then you see them on Instagram it, like you know advertised yeah I feel like you feel constantly just bombarded mm. by advertising and opportunities to spend that you, and it's quite hard to say no sometimes mm. you know and I think that like we said the ease with which you can just tap your thumbprint on a phone and buy something I think it's just dangerous mm. uh, but I don't really see there being an end to that so no. I don't know what the solution is here's a question if your like card was like in your thumb so you had like contactless payments through your thumb would you do it oh. so you were like your debit card that's so weird probably yeah I know you yeah, do I'd do anything for an easy life <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you'd have to lose it I think that's so the future true. I that's think they're so going to put a little chip in you yeah, I feel like one of those old people now that's just like, oh god, technology. <laughs> well, I went, so to, I went to the, uh, I went to the Amazon shop in, um, in San Jose, and you, when you go in, it syncs with your phone, so you get logged into your Amazon account, so then you can walk out. You don't have to go to a checkout, and whatever you take with you, you get, you just it goes off your account. That is insane. It's quite mad, isn't that? So mad. Yeah, yeah I went into the easy. future. <laughs> I know it's all too easy. It's far that's how too I feel. easy. Um, so Ellie, what's next for you? What's your ambitions? What are you working on? I've got a new BBC Three documentary. Out on sexual assault in police custody in the US um, following the case of an 18-year-old girl who says that she was raped by two police officers in New York and then looking at other cases across the country. Um, Also working on a new documentary for BBC Three, which I can't say a huge amount about at the moment, but that's ongoing. And yeah, and then just sort of bits and bobs here and there. I still keep up with writing. Um, Done a few bits of reporting for the one show, so... Yeah, it's cool. Amazing. Well, congratulations on everything. I'm very excited to see all all the stuff that you do in the future. And thank you for all your advice and coming on the show. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe, rate and review so more people can find the show. Until next time, keep dreaming and achieving.
My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tapiphone. 